All right, the text for our sermon this morning, and really we'll talk about all the texts, but this is the one we haven't heard yet, which is a real specific miracle. It also is the lesson the kids learned in Sunday school. It's uh, Jesus' first miracle, where he turns water into wine at a wedding. And this comes from John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. We read, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said to him, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine comes after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of our God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, accreditation is a word that is hard to spell, and I don't think I would have spelled it right, but spell check helped me out. Uh, accreditation, are you familiar with that term? <laughs> Unfortunately, a little too familiar. Anybody in the educational system, teachers, you guys know about accreditation, so what is accreditation? It's a, a process that, for example, a university would go through in order to prove their quality their excellence, their ability to meet national standards. And to put it mildly, accreditation can be a lot of work and it can take a long time. But in the end, it's worth it, I think. <laughs> because now you can prove on paper that you are meeting these national standards, that you are a top level school. Uh, being accredited or having your school accredited is a way to show that you're legit. So what a fitting word choice then for Peter. In that second reading we heard, as he looks back on Jesus' ministry, he talks about the things that happened. And as he preaches this sermon, Peter uses this word. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by his miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So Jesus' miracles were God's way of validating him to the world as the promised Savior. God's way of showing that he was legit. Now, we just finished reading the account of Jesus' first miracle, where he changed water into wine, and it describes that whole story, and we won't talk through that whole story, but what does it say at the end? What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, this was just the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it was not a one-time thing. Jesus was doing miracles over and over and over. And right after this is when he started all the time as part of what is called his Galilean ministry. He's in this sort of countryside area around the Sea of Galilee. And he is doing miracles left and right. 
Jesus starts healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the demon-possessed. Jesus demonstrates his power over nature by doing things like walking on the water, calming the storm, uh, causing an enormous catch of fish from one person's boat. On multiple occasions, Jesus feeds thousands of people out of one kid's lunchbox. There's the feeding of the 5,000. There's also a separate feeding of the 4,000. And if you count women and children who were there, this is probably the feeding of the 10,000 and the 8,000. But he did it twice, which was really amazing. And then, on multiple occasions, he raised a person from the dead. He went to a little girl who had died and said to her, little girl, stand up. And she did. He interrupted a funeral procession where a young man's body was being carried in the casket and he barged through, opened the casket, took his hand and brought him out alive. Jesus even raised Lazarus from the dead where he walked up to a sealed tomb where someone had been in the tomb for three days and he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came walking out. So Jesus did tons of amazing miracles. It, it would take us all morning just to talk about the ones that are listed in the Bible. Uh, and who knows how many other miracles Jesus did that didn't make it into the Bible. Days are described for us where there's just like a line of people. And Jesus is one at a time healing every single one. So now we're talking about miracles. We've, got, we've moved into Jesus' ministry. Uh, his life among us is no longer so quiet uh, his, his godliness is no longer behind the scenes. Now it's public ministry and all these public miracles. So here's the question. Why did he do them? Why did Jesus do these miracles over and over again? I think you could point to a couple different reasons. Here would be one of them. Jesus did miracles, first of all, to show his followers that their faith was well-placed. And a great example of this would be the miracle that we just read, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding. Jesus does this incredible miracle. All of this water instantly changes into wine, and the result is that he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples saw this and believed in him. So his disciples already believed in him. Uh, what they were is people who had left their homes. And they had left their jobs, and they had left their full-time employment, and they were following along with Jesus to help him in his ministry because they're trusting that he is the promised Savior, even though he looks like a pretty normal person. So Jesus' miracles like this let his followers know that their faith in him was not in vain. He really was the promised Savior, like they were hoping for and banking on. So Jesus' miracles showed his followers their faith was well-placed. Another reason Jesus did miracles was to give physical, concrete support to some spiritual, abstract teachings. So you just think about this. Like, what was Jesus' big claim? Jesus said he was the Son of God. And what did that mean? Well, Jesus said he had come to take away our sins. And what's the result of that? It's that one day we're going to get to live with God in heaven. <laughs> but God... And sins and heaven are all abstract concepts. You can't see them. You can't touch them. So in his miracles, Jesus gave people things that they could see and touch. For example, a pair of legs that suddenly worked when they had never worked for someone's entire life. Or a pair of eyes that could suddenly see. Or injuries that were instantly healed. 
or food for 5,000 people that instantly appeared out of some kid's lunchbox. When Jesus did these physical things that you can touch and see, it gave support to his spiritual abstract teachings that you cannot touch and see. Now, if you want an example of Jesus using a miracle that way, a great example would be this day when Jesus was teaching in a crowded home. The home is just packed. It's before COVID protocols. You know, but like people can't even move because they're wedged into this tiny home trying to see Jesus. And people are outside looking through the windows. People are on the roofs of other houses trying to hear in. And there was a man who had been paralyzed his whole life. And he and his friends trusted in Jesus' ability to heal. And so his friends dug a hole in the thatch roof. Maybe you remember this story. And they very carefully lowered this paralyzed man down on ropes so he just gently comes through the ceiling and lands right in front of where Jesus is teaching. And everyone is watching. Do you remember what Jesus' first words were to this paralyzed man? He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then we read immediately, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were there began thinking among themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked them, why are you thinking these thoughts in your hearts? And he says this, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take up your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up, took the mat he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. <laughs> yes, you have. Someone from their village who had been paralyzed his whole entire life and now he could walk. But Jesus used that healing to prove the deeper point that you couldn't see, that this man's sins were forgiven. Anyone can claim to be God and forgive sins, but when you back it up by causing a paralyzed man to walk, people start paying attention. And so Jesus' miracles lent physical, concrete support to his spiritual abstract teachings. Does that make sense? So then one more reason that Jesus did miracles, we talked about this in Bible study, Jesus also did miracles simply to help people because Jesus simply loved people. Jesus' whole life, as God lived among us and took on a human body, what was the point of Jesus' whole life? It's a substitute life. Right? Jesus is going to take that life to the cross and he's going to take our sinful life on himself and suffer and die for that and he's going to give us in exchange a life of perfection that earns heaven. And so as Jesus is putting together a perfect life, part of that perfect life is perfect compassion. Right? And we think of all the times that we have walked past people or all the times that we have made judgments about people or all the times that we have just not been loving and compassionate to those in need. And Jesus is perfectly loving and compassionate for everybody and he's doing it in our place. So part of his miracles was just a pure heart of love and compassion for every single person. This is who Jesus is. So Jesus did a lot of miracles. Uh, but he didn't do them randomly. He did all his miracles for a purpose, and his purpose was always good. But interestingly, the reactions to Jesus' miracles were not always quite so good. In fact, a decent chunk of the Gospels is devoted to describing times when people had unfortunate reactions to Jesus' miracles. 
For example, when Jesus preached at his home synagogue in Nazareth, I think we're going to talk about this in a few weeks later on in the series, but Jesus comes back to his home synagogue where he grew up and he preaches there and people were offended at him. Here's what they said. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his sisters, or aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? We know his sisters. Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And then it says, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Isn't that an interesting sentence? Jesus didn't do very many miracles in his hometown because of their lack of faith. Wouldn't you think that if there's a lack of faith, Jesus would do more miracles so he could convince everybody and show them that they were wrong? But he didn't. Because apparently, Jesus' miracles were not meant for silencing doubters. They were meant for encouraging believers. Another time, Jesus fed the 5,000. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children out of one kid's lunchbox. And John tells us the people were so excited that they intended to come and make him king by force. And so what did Jesus do? He ran. He withdrew. And he went to a quiet place to escape from them. Because apparently his miracles were not meant for building an earthly empire. In fact, the next time he preached, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus clarified it. And he made it real clear. He gave his bread of life discourse, is what this is called, where he explained to people, he's the bread of life that comes from heaven, and his real job is not to build some kind of earthly kingdom. His real job is a spiritual kingdom that you can't see. And Jesus made it so clear that people didn't like it. And John tells us from this time forward, many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. Because he had made it so clear his miracles were not meant for building an earthly kingdom. One more example. Do you remember Jesus' trial? He is on trial before the Roman governor, whose name is Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is unsure what to do with this obviously innocent man who the Jewish leaders want to have killed. And so as a way of stalling and buying some time, Pontius Pilate sends him over to Herod, who's the ruler of Galilee, the area where Jesus had done many of those miracles. And this is a different Herod, by the way, than the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. It's a later Herod. But anyway, Luke tells us in his gospel, when Herod saw Jesus on trial, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a miracle. He asked him many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Apparently, Jesus' miracles were not meant for saving his own skin either. So all this talk about miracles, you know, it's so interesting. What are, what are the most fascinating miracles of Jesus? To me, the most fascinating ones are the ones he skipped. These situations we just listed where you would think he would have done a miracle. Like, could you not just resolve this little misunderstanding by doing a miracle? And then he just didn't sometimes. So why in the world not? And this is where all this talk about Jesus' miracles starts to lead us into a deeper conversation about the nature of faith. We talked about this in Bible study before church. We said if only God would do miracles today, then people would believe. 
Well, no, they wouldn't. Because Jesus lived in a world that I think was far more open to spirituality. Jesus lived in a world that was far less skeptical to gods and spiritual things. And he did miracles constantly in the nation that was specifically waiting for God to come and be a person in this world. And in this environment that should have been ready for it, Jesus did thousands of miracles. And people were so skeptical. And people were so suspicious that he was faking. And people were accusing him of blasphemy and saying that he was lying. And people who were at those miracles were still saying this must have been a trick. And if Jesus were to perform miracles in our world today, it would be more of the exact same thing. And here is why. Miracles and proofs may impress people, but they don't create faith. Miracles and proofs may impress people, but they don't create faith. Because faith, by its very definition, is a trust in the unproven and in the unseen. Right? I mean, this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Hebrews 11, verse 1. He says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. And despite all the miracles that people could see, the best things about Jesus, the most important things he came to do, are all unproven and as of yet unseen. Think about it. So what would be a major impressive miracle? Let's go with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has fed all of these people. He's got everybody's attention. I mean, this is undeniably amazing. But what has Jesus empirically proven? He's proven he somehow can multiply bread and fish. Right? He hasn't proven that he's God. Because how could you do that? Also, what is God? And what would constitute if we know that we're looking at him? Could Jesus take us to heaven and have God the Father be his reference? And would that prove to us that he's God? How can you prove that you're God when we've never seen God and don't even know really what God is? In the feeding of the 5,000, incredible miracle, has Jesus proven that our sins are forgiven? Can you prove that? Can Jesus take us and show us the room where our sins were stored and now it's empty? Can you show us the book where our sins were written and now they're crossed out? Is there a book like that that we can see? In a, mir a miracle even as great as the feeding of the 5,000, has Jesus proven that we are going to rise from our graves someday? How could he prove that? It's in the future. <laughs> could he take us to the future and show us our own resurrection? If he did, would we believe it? Or would we think that maybe this is just a vision? You get the point, I hope, I think. All of the greatest, deepest spiritual things that Jesus came to do, forgive our sins, rescue us from death, take us to heaven, these are things that cannot be 100% empirically proven because either they're invisible spiritual concepts or they haven't happened yet. But in either case, they can't be proven. They must simply be received by faith. And here is where maybe sometimes it feels really hard for us. Especially in a skeptical world, and in an intellectual world, and in a world where we want empirical proof for things. How can we get faith like this that ultimately, at the end of the day, is trusting in the unproven and the unseen? How could we trust in something that's not proven and not seen? Well, the answer doesn't come from miracles. 
It comes from the Holy Spirit. So in the book of Romans, uh, God gives us a rare glimpse into the mystery of how he works with people who by nature are hostile to him. And here's what God says in the book of Romans. He says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. In other words, people don't come to faith by receiving finally rock-solid, unbreakable proof that the Bible is true. People don't come to faith by finally hearing a perfectly well-reasoned argument with no logical loopholes left. People don't come to faith like that, and they never have. People come to faith because of the gospel. People come to faith because of God's love. Because of the message that is so beautiful, we can hardly believe it's true, but it's also so beautiful that we can't stop thinking about it. The idea that what if God really loved the world so much that he would send his one and only son that whoever believes in him could have eternal life? What if God really was like that? And what if God really did do that? The concept that God loves people so much that he became one of us and traded his life for ours and took our punishment and gave us his reward and took our eternal death and gave us his eternal life. Right? The concept that God loves you and he sees everything about you and he sees all of your failures and weaknesses and sins and he still loves you so much that he died for you. The concept that there's a God like that who is that good and that loving and that kind. Through that concept, God's Holy Spirit reaches into our hearts and makes us think, a God who would do all of that for me. No, I can't logically explain everything about his existence, but a God who would do all of that for me. That's a God worth knowing. That's a God worth trusting. And so in the end, faith doesn't come from physical miracles but it comes from that quiet and beautiful message of the gospel, which the Holy Spirit sets on our hearts and it just won't leave us alone. That gospel message that God would love us so much sinks more and more deeply into our hearts until pretty soon we can't look at our world without seeing it through that lens. So, lots of thoughts about miracles. I mean, this is really the sermon on all of Jesus' miracles. And then it's led us into this deeper discussion about the nature of faith and faith in the unproven and unseen. But let's bring it back with one closing thought here about Jesus' miracles and, and what they did. So you think back to Jesus' ministry and all of his different miracles, and this is, this is maybe the most important thing of all. Each one of Jesus' miracles was also a window. It was a window into a feast where the wine never runs out. It was a window into a life where your body works perfectly and it's never going to stop. It was a window into a world where you never have to mourn or go to another funeral because there's no such thing as death. It was a window into a place where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. That world is there waiting for us, eternal life in heaven. And Jesus' miracles are a window into what that world looks like. The place where finally 
faith becomes sight. And the faith where finally these things we can't even comprehend, like God and seeing him face to face and the resurrection of our loved ones and the eternal celebration, it all becomes physically, tangibly real and it lasts that way forever. Each of Jesus' miracles is a window into that world where he came from and the world where by his grace and the power of his spirit working in our hearts, the world where one day we too shall be. May God grant that to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.